Hi, everyone. Quick note, stay tuned at the end of this episode for a surprise bonus episode. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. Thanks for the reviews you've been sending, and we want to welcome lots of new listeners from Spotify and Google Play, as well as Apple Podcast app. Today's story, a mystery, one of the great unsolved disappearance mysteries of the 20th century, and one which continues to be talked about and investigated week in and week out. Lake Michigan, one of America's five great lakes, about the size of the state of West Virginia, is no stranger to human disasters, especially when it comes to ships, as over 1,000 ships have sunk in her waters in the past 200 years. Well, this story isn't about a ship or a boat wreck, at least as far as we know. It's about three young women who parked their blankets and belongings on a crowded beach and walked out onto the lake, then were seen boarding a boat, never to be seen again, despite a massive manhunt that involved the Navy, Coast Guard, and Park Rangers, and their fates were swallowed up as deep as any of the Great Lakes shipwrecks, with no trace of what happened to them after 60 years of searching. Lake Michigan borders Illinois on the west, and Michigan on the east, but it's the south end that belongs to Indiana, and which draws much of the tourist traffic in the summer. And on that south beach, as it's called, you'll find Indiana Dunes State Park. Indiana Dunes State Park encompasses 2,182 acres of beach, dunes, marshes, swamps, hardwood forests, and white pine groves, and it's surrounded by national park lands. But it's the beach and the sunbathing, boating, and swimming which is the real draw. It was noon on July 2, 1966, at Indiana Dunes State Park, about an hour around the lake from Chicago, when three young women arrived at the beach, set up their blankets, and after sunning and talking for a time, walked down to the water, and then soon after, boarded a 14-foot fiberglass boat. A couple whose beach blanket was beside the young women's watched as the motorboat glided away, then waited all day for them to return. They didn't know the girls, but they thought it was odd that they would leave their purses unattended on a day when the park was packed with more than 9,000 holiday weekend sunbathers and swimmers. When that couple left at dusk, they pointed out the abandoned blankets to a park ranger. They told him that the young women had left on a boat that was operated by a young man with a head full of dark, curly hair. The ranger bundled up the belongings and stored them away. It was a busy weekend. He apparently saw no reason why three women would not come to claim their personal belongings at the end of the day. This was Saturday, July 2nd. A day and a half later, on July 4th, Park Superintendent Bill Svetik took a call from a Chicago man inquiring about his daughter, Patty Blau, 19. She had not been heard from since leaving home for Indiana Dunes with two friends Saturday morning. Svetik opened the blanket bundle that had been left on the beach and found Blau's wallet, keys, and clothing. He also found clothes and purses belonging to Blau's friends, Renee Bruhl, 19, and Ann Miller, 21. Ann Miller's 1955 Buick was still sitting in the beach parking lot. Svetik assured Harold Blau that his daughter would turn up. She probably just had a little bit too much fun over the holiday weekend. But Patty didn't show up, and neither did her friends, an investigation finally began as scuba divers scoured the lake and searchers in the air, on foot and on horseback, combed the sprawling sands and woods of the park, 
which stretches along 45 miles of the Indiana coastline. Crime analysts know that the first 48 hours are vital to finding missing persons, and those hours had already been lost. No sign of the young women has ever been found. In fact, they remain missing 55 years later, and their fate remains one of the enduring unsolved mysteries of the region. We'll give you every detail that is known about the women in hopes that this telling of the story might help to uncover a clue. And this story continues to be covered by newspapers, crime blogs, podcasts, radio call-in shows, Reddit, and other media, all with the same hope of closure for the victims' families. This cold case remains one of the most perplexing of all. We'll return with the details right after this brief sponsor message. And now we return to our episode. On the morning of July 2nd, Ann Miller drove her 1955 four-door Buick out of her parents' driveway on Rochdale Circle in west suburban Lombard, a village suburb of Chicago, Illinois, headed for suburban Westchester and picked up 19-year-old Patty Blau from her family's Drury Lane home in Westchester at around 8 a.m. Patty told her mother that they planned to return home early in the evening since their friend Renee Brule was coming with them and she needed to be back in time to make supper for her husband. Anne and Patty picked up Renee from her home on West Fulton in Chicago's west side and then stopped at a drugstore to pick up some suntan lotion. The women arrived at the Indiana Dunes State Park at approximately 10 a.m. Saturday, July 2nd and parked near the park pavilion. It was already 88 degrees with light winds coming in off the lake. Anne parked in the lot and the women hiked about three-quarters of a mile to a spot that they liked which was located under three poplar trees, spreading their blankets on the side of a dune. Ann Miller, a five-foot-two brunette with blue eyes, was wearing a blue two-piece bathing suit with a red belt. Patty, five-foot-four inches with brown eyes and brown hair, wore a bright yellow bikini with ruffles. And Renee, the tallest of the three at five-foot-nine, with brown hair and hazel eyes, and wearing a brown swimsuit with a pattern of green flowers and gold leaves. The spot was about a 100 yards from shore, the distance from the dunes to the shoreline, but still populated with sunbathers and blankets. A nearby couple, Mike Yankalisa and Francis Cicero, stated that the girls left their belongings on the beach at noon and that they entered the water together. The witnesses then saw them speaking to an unidentified man who was operating a 14 to 16 foot long white boat with an aquamarine blue interior and outboard motor. They were not quite sure of the time when this man approached them. The couple described all this to the park ranger around dusk when they noticed that the women's belongings were still sitting on the beach. The women had gotten on the boat, which was about 15 feet long, they said, and had headed west with the driver, a tanned young man with a head full of wavy black hair. It wasn't uncommon at the beach at that time for sun-tanned young men to pull their boats close into the beach and invite young ladies to climb aboard for a ride. But beyond that day, Anne, Patty, and Renee were never seen again. Patty Blau left behind a yellow robe, a pair of sunglasses, a transistor radio, a white print towel, and her wallet with $5 inside of it. Renee Brule left a large beach towel, shorts, blouse, cigarettes, suntan lotion, 25 cents, and her purse, which contained about $55 in checks, sitting on the beach. Ann Miller left a thermos bottle on the blanket, along with her denim shorts, shoes, a polo shirt, and a white bathing cap and a comb. 
Those belongings were collected by the ranger on the night of their disappearance and stored in the park superintendent's office until July 4th, when Patty's father called the park, searching for his daughter and her friends. He spoke with park superintendent William Svetik, telling him that his daughter and two friends had left for the beach at 8 a.m. Saturday and had not returned home. Svetik immediately went to the bundles that had been turned in to search for clues. One key ring showed a miniature Illinois license plate number 265-487, and Svetik ordered his men to search the parking lot for it, and they found Ann's car near the pavilion. The park rangers soon learned that missing persons reports had been filed for all three women over the weekend in Illinois by their families. It had been a busy holiday weekend. July 2nd, the day the girls arrived, had witnessed over 8,000 visitors arriving in over 2,100 cars. The rangers, upon searching Ann's Buick, found other items of clothing and personal effects were still inside of the car. The car was still parked in its original spot from July 2nd. No one had moved it. They called the Indiana State Police at 8.50 a.m. on July 4th, and by 10 a.m., Trooper Harry Young responded, taking control of the personal effects. First Sergeant Edward Burke, a 39-year-old state police detective regarded as one of the best in the business, was also heading for the park, where he interviewed park employees and inventoried the items on the blanket and in the car, looking for clues. The park rangers soon got other law enforcement agencies involved, including the U.S. Coast Guard. The search was in full swing by July 5th, three days after the girls had vanished. Other witnesses who were in the park that day came forward with conflicting stories, but authorities came to believe that the first witnesses' reports were the most reliable. The three women were seen boarding a boat, and it appeared that they did not return to the beach, although later additional witnesses would testify that they did, and that they left again. But we'll get to that in a minute. The search for the three women continued around the clock. It was extended to a six-mile stretch of beach west of the state park near Ogden Dunes later in the week. More witnesses came forward that substantiated the initial report that the women got into a boat with an unidentified man. Later accounts claimed that he was in his early 20s with a tanned complexion and dark wavy hair. He was wearing a beach jacket at the time. A beachgoer who was taking home movies on July 2nd offered his films to investigators. The search was narrowed down to two boats after the detectives watched the footage. One of them was a 16-foot runabout with a three-hull design, which was operated by a man who fit the description of the man seen with the girls. Three women who matched descriptions of the missing girls were seen aboard the boat in the footage. The second boat was identified as a 26-foot cabin cruiser with three men and three women aboard. The cabin cruiser was seen at around 3 p.m., three hours after the women got aboard the smaller boat. After reports came in that Anne, Patty, and Renee were seen walking on the beach and eating after this time, investigators came to believe that they'd been dropped off on the beach west of the state park by the driver of the smaller boat, while he drove back to retrieve his two male friends and the cabin cruiser. While on the second beach, the girls were reportedly approached by another unidentified man who accompanied them to the cabin cruiser. Witnesses stated that this second boat was equipped with a radio telephone antenna, but apparently did not have a name painted on its stern. This final sighting has never been confirmed, but the authorities did consider it reliable. The name on the back of the boat, as later investigations would reveal, had been sanded off. 
The search went on and on, but lead after lead went nowhere. On Wednesday, July 6th, the search was concentrated on a six-mile stretch of beach west of the park, extending to Ogden Dunes, an upscale wooded community with water access. This search was instigated by a lead from two men from South Holland, Illinois, as well as from an Indianapolis couple who had been at the park Saturday and seen three young women enter a boat containing one man, which was headed in that direction. They were able to confirm that one of the three women had a yellow swimsuit and later matched all three women to photographs shown them. Later, on Wednesday, July 6th, debris from a wrecked boat washed up along the shoreline three miles west of where the women were last seen. Searchers found pieces of metal and styrofoam indicating that it had been a fiberglass boat. That discovery was made near Bailey Generating Station of the Northern Indiana Public Service Company, which contains a water intake crib about a quarter mile out into the lake, and police theorized that the boat might have smashed into that crib and broken up. Curiously, police and Coast Guard had received no report of a boat having been reported as missing. However, if the owner had died in the mishap, who was going to report it? Reporters congregated at the scene, but were told by police that no connection and no bodies had been found, despite a thorough search. The search in southern Lake Michigan continued for a full week. Civil Air Patrol planes from Cook County and Gary searched the lower end of the lake. Coast Guard cutters also searched. The park was searched by men with teams of bloodhounds. Scuba divers relentlessly searched the bottom and sheriff's posses looked into the 250 cabins that dotted the dunes area, but nothing was ever found. A psychic that was brought into the case claimed to have a vision of a Lake Michigan cabin where the women's bodies were buried. An extensive search of the property believed to be the place seen by the psychic did not uncover any evidence. However, detectives did point out that the shifting sand dunes, as now this was years later, might have buried any possible evidence deeply underground. It wasn't long before investigators began looking into the backgrounds of the three women in an attempt to discover if their disappearances could have been voluntary, and it was there that things got even murkier and stranger. In Renee Brule's purse, the authorities found a letter addressed to her husband, Jeff, a 21-year-old accounting student. The couple had been married for just 15 months, by July of 1966, but in the letter, she asked for a divorce. She said that she felt her husband spent too much time working on cars with his friends and didn't seem to have time for her. Her husband, though, told the police that he was not aware of any problems in their marriage at the time of his wife's disappearance. Her family agreed with that statement, telling investigators that they believed Renee had written the note in a moment of anger and never gave it to Jeff because she had changed her mind about the divorce. But that was only the beginning of what the investigation would reveal. All three women were friends, drawn together by their love of horses. Patty and Anne met while boarding their horses at the same Illinois stable. Renee was a classmate of Patty's at Proviso West High School in Maywood, Illinois, and she had completed a one-year course in medical technology after graduation. The women often rode together and often met at a tavern in Hodgkins, Illinois, after their outings. According to a theory created by Dick Wiley, a reporter and photographer who chased crime in northwest Indiana, for the Gary Post Tribune and the Chicago Sun-Times during the 50s and 60s, the events leading to their disappearance began there. Both Patty and Anne were single, and widely believed that they both fell for married men they met at the tavern, and both got pregnant. Later, statements from some of Anne's friends, 
claimed that she was three months pregnant in July of 1966 and mentioned going to a home for unwed mothers prior to her disappearance. But did she have plans to end the pregnancy? And then what about Patty? Was she pregnant as well? Abortion was illegal in Illinois in 1966. According to Dick Wiley, some Chicago women who found themselves in trouble visited a house just across the state border in Gary, where a husband and wife team, Helen and Frank Largo, performed backroom abortions. Wiley linked the Largos, now dead, to a floating abortion mill that operated on a houseboat offshore in Lake Michigan. He believes Anne and Patty had arranged abortions on that boat on July 2nd, and they were ferried there by Ralph Largo Jr., a nephew of Helen and Frank Largo. He was seen at the park that day and matched the description of the man last seen with the girls on the beach. We'll return with the details right after this brief sponsor message. And now we return to our episode. Wiley believes that the women got to the larger boat, but something went wrong with one of the procedures, and the other two were killed so that no witnesses would be left behind. The girls had left their belongings on the beach because they expected to be back in 90 minutes, Wiley believed. That theory has never been confirmed. The younger Largo died in 2009, but it is plausible. However, unless a body does turn up, it's likely that that will always remain just a theory. But it does fit with some eyewitness reports. A man from Ligonier, Indiana, who had been taking movies at the beach that day, recalled that he'd been filming the general area where the girls were known to be, and called the authorities. From his movie film and reports of dozens of eyewitnesses, police were able to narrow their search to two boats, one, a 26- to 28-foot cabin cruiser, and two, a 16- to 18-foot trimaran runabout. The trimaran is a fiberglass tri-hull. The man piloting the trimaran was seen to be in his early 20s, well-tanned, with dark, wavy hair, and wearing a beach jacket. The three girls, based on that film, were positively identified as being seen getting into that boat. Miss Blau sat up front, the others at the back. The cabin cruiser was seen about three hours after the trimaran. The women were seen, at that time, back on the beach, getting something to eat, and then wandering off into the dunes. This raised the possibility that they had returned in the trimaran and were waiting for the young man to return with the cabin cruiser and, and his pals, which was a 26-foot Trojan with three men aboard, and it approached close to the beach, where the trimaran had been. One witness said that one of the three men left the boat and went up to talk with the three women. The girls then accompanied the man out to the cruiser, boarded it, and it put out into the lake. One of the witnesses was a lawyer from Gary named Robert Blatz, who noticed that the boat was equipped with a radio telephone antenna, but had no name on the stern. The boats that they were allegedly on, on that July day in 1966, have never been located, and the men operating them have never been solidly identified. But people have continued to speculate, especially when it comes to the girls' connection with horses. Their contacts at nearby stables could just as easily have led them to their deaths as well. Anne, Patty, and Renee often rode at the tricolor stables in Palatine, Illinois, which were owned by George Jane, a wealthy and well-known horse dealer. George was known to be involved in a bitter feud with his brother, Silas Jane, who was involved in fraudulent activities which included illegal horse betting, car bombing, and murder in the mid-1960s. Cheryl Ann Rude 
A young woman associated with the horse market was killed at the Tricolor Stables in June of 1965 by a car bomb that had been meant for George Jane. George had asked Cheryl to move his Cadillac from the stable entrance, and as soon as she hit the ignition, the bomb exploded, killing her. Some believe that perhaps Patty, Anne, and Renee, or any one or any combination of them, may have witnessed the bomb being planted. But that doesn't explain why anyone would have waited an entire year before silencing them. Or does it? In March of 1966, Patty received a facial injury that she never explained. One of her friends claimed she made an offhanded remark about it and mentioned trouble with syndicate people. But no proof of any trouble exists. Silas, George's brother, also had a stable, and the girls were known to ride there as well. Silas was a cold-blooded killer and a rapist, and he was known for taking advantage of young, wealthy Chicago girls. Not only had Silas been convicted for rape as a teenager, he was indicted and later jailed for conspiracy to kill his brother, and he had burned ten of his brother's prize horses alive in their barn, and he was known for covering up one of his employees' murder of three young men and that was known as the Peterson-Schusler murders. And if that wasn't enough, he was also involved in a shootout with police that had resulted in the death of an officer. The girls may well have ended up as innocent pawns in a nasty brotherly rivalry that eventually ended in death for George and imprisonment for Silas. But you have to ask yourself, how in the world could three young women from nice homes even associate with people like this? And you know the detectives couldn't say it, but they were thinking it. Both of those men's telephone numbers were found in the young women's belongings after their disappearance. There is no question that the two men were deeply involved in crime. George was shot to death in 1970, and Silas was later convicted of conspiracy in his brother's murder and sent to prison. Silas died in 1987. He is also a suspect in the disappearance and probably murder of Candy heiress Helen Brack, and you might recognize the name Brax Candy, B-R-A-C-H apostrophe S. In 1997, a man named James Blaccio was charged with planting the 1965 car bomb that killed Cheryl Ann Rude at the Jane Stables, but neither he nor the Janeses had been positively linked to the disappearances of Ann, Patty, and Renee. It's not hard to speculate, though, that any of them might have been involved in some way. Silas Jane reportedly told a sheriff that he had three bodies buried beneath his residence after the 1966 disappearances. Investigators took his claim seriously and planned to search the property, but the sheriff involved was killed in a farming accident before the search took place. And then you have to ask yourself, was that an accident? For whatever reason, it was not pursued after that, leading some to wonder if the claim was true. Detective Burke entered these words in his log at one point. Each of the girls had personal problems that could have motivated them to stage what would appear to have been a drowning incident. The earlier finding of the divorce note in Brule's purse pointed to serious marital problems. Two of the women were thought to be pregnant. Blau and Miller had the numbers of known felons in their notebooks. The night before they disappeared, they had both come home at dawn. As previously mentioned, about four months before her disappearance, Friends of Blau noted that she had suffered an injury to her face that looked as if she'd been punched. And when she was asked about it, she confided that she was in some sort of trouble with syndicate people that she knew. Another theory posited by police detectives was that the girls might have planned their own disappearance. It's hard to swallow, but in detective work, all things have to be considered. 
What happened to those three young women in July of 1966? We'll likely never know. The case is not unsolvable, but without any bodies or solid new leads, it's unlikely that the truth will ever be known. Hello, everyone. Hope you enjoyed this episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. I have a bonus episode for you, and this one is from a new show we created called 1001 History Challenge. This show offers a quote from history or pop culture and gives you the story behind that quote or popular phrase. It might come from a movie, a song, or a famous person. The stories are fun, short, and informative. 1001 History Challenge has had a slow start, but many more episodes are coming. So take a moment and download this one to your favorite podcast host. I'll leave links for you today, including the RSS feed for you computer geeks, all in the show notes for you. That's 1001 History Challenge. Download, share, review, and enjoy weekly every Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Thanks. Hope you enjoy. Welcome everyone to the new 1001 History Challenge. I've changed the format up a little bit so I could tell a bit of a longer story, which is always important, I think, with history. But the premise is the same. We pick a historical quote from movies, pop culture, or history, and tell the story behind it, and leave a few openings in there for you to be able to figure out. Are you ready for today's history challenge? The quote is, You're going to need a bigger boat. Today on 1001 History Challenge, we explore the number three ranked quote on Hollywood's top 100 movie quotes. You're going to need a bigger boat. The quote comes from Steven Spielberg's epic 1975 thriller, Jaws, written by Carl Gottlieb and starring Roy Scheider, Richard Dreyfuss, and Robert Shaw. Our challenge questions are, This line has been spoofed in several movies and TV series. Can you name the movie it was used in starring Jackie Chan and Owen Wilson? And as this is the number three ranked quote in movie history, can you name the number two and number one ranked quotes in movie history? If not, we'll be helping you out at the end. Surprisingly, the line was not part of the original script. In fact, the line originated as a joke on the set when the crew began shooting the boat scenes on the water. The story goes, a large barge was needed to hold the production equipment for shooting the scenes in the water and on Robert Shaw's character, Quint's boat. The producers of the film were known to be tight with the budget and rented only one small boat to steady the barge on the water. The boat was not big enough to do the job very well and it made things very difficult for the production crew. Soon, crew members were telling the producers, you're gonna need a bigger boat. Once the majority of the crew had commented about needing a bigger boat to steady the barge, the saying became the catchphrase for any problem that came up during production, from lighting issues to steadying the camera to even wardrobe and makeup mishaps. Someone on the crew was bound to say, you're gonna need a bigger boat. The actors picked up on this phrase, and soon Roy Scheider started ad-libbing the line during several scenes. Carl Gottlieb thought the line would work best during the scene where Roy's character, Brody, first sees the shark up close, so he quickly rewrote that scene to include it. But this isn't the end of the story, including the famous line into the script, which has a story all of its own. 
Originally, the quote was said as Brody stands up after he first sees the shark. But when test audiences kept making noise after seeing the shark, the scene was recut having Brody say it to Quint when he backs into the boathouse, which gave audiences a chance to quiet down so they could hear it. Making movies isn't easy, and apparently making famous lines from movies isn't easy either. And our number three most famous movie quote came a long way from the production crew's joke on the set to a line written and spoken in Jaws, and now probably still used today. Joking about someone somewhere having a problem or an issue with something, and someone says, You're gonna need a bigger boat. Have you had a chance to think about our challenge questions? What Jackie Chan, Owen Wilson movie spoofed our phrase? We'll return with the answers right after these sponsor messages. The answer, Shanghai Nights, which is the sequel to Jackie Chan and Owen Wilson's Shanghai Noon. For some reason, they waited until the sequel to spoof our quote, you're going to need a bigger boat. Our second question, what are the number two and number one ranked movie quotes? Without too much surprise, the number two quote is, here's looking at you, kid. I'm curious what makes this quote so famous. Was it the line itself in an extremely popular movie? or the way Humphrey Bogart delivered it. Surely no one else could deliver that line like he did. And the number one ranked movie quote of all time? Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Again, Clark Gable in Gone with the Wind delivered this line like no one else could. And interestingly enough, movie screeners at the time felt the line was too risque, so the line was rewritten 20 different ways. After much debate, the screeners relented, and the line was thankfully kept as written and included in the final cut. We hope you enjoyed our 1001 History Challenge. We'll try to keep them coming weekly for you. Please do tell a friend, and please do send us a review, Apple listeners. We need reviews on this show, as it's our seventh show, and we've got a lot of catch-up to do. Let us know if you like it. Thanks a lot. Thanks for joining us at the 1001 History Challenge. Are you up for the challenge? The 1001 History Challenge is a proud part of the 1001 Stories Podcast Network. Just search 1001 wherever great podcasts are found, and you're in for a ton of great stories. New shows at all of our 1001 podcasts launch every Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Thank you. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries for this mystery from the cold case files of Indiana. Join us for new episodes at 1001 History Challenge and find out how the expression, we're going to need a bigger boat, was worked into the Jaws script and how it became the third most popular movie quote for the American Film Institute. And that's 1001 History Challenge. We're inviting you to go there. You'll find it anywhere you find 1001 History Podcast. Reviews are appreciated as well, so please send us some love. Until next week, Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, everybody stay safe, and we'll see you soon.